1901, Charles Albert Tindley composed a hymn entitled I'll Overcome Someday. By 1947, it had evolved into We Will Overcome. And then again by 1960, the civil rights movement transformed the lyric into We Shall Overcome. But now, one Jamaican-American says we should actually sing We Have Overcome. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, it's panic in America. Oh, 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 it's trouble in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Thousands of Jamaicans give a warm welcome to Her Majesty the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh when they visit the island's old capital, Spanish Town. So that all the great crowd may see them, the royal visitors take their places by a statue of Rodney, whose naval victories rid Jamaica of the threat of French invasion in the late 18th century. Queen Elizabeth II is the head of state of 16 countries, one of which is Jamaica. The Queen, who is the guest of the Governor Sir Hugh Foote during her stay, visits Sabina Park, where 35,000 schoolchildren wait to welcome her. Their eyes shine with excitement. Their Queen has come from a far-off land to see them. It is a moment they will cherish all their lives. She has visited the nation six times. In a Land Rover, the Queen, who wears a white and green frock, drives between the ranks of cheering children. A brilliant day, warm not only with the bright sunshine, but with the affection of the Queen's people who live in the island once called the fairest jewel in the British crown. After 307 years of British rule, Jamaica became an independent state in 1962. Shortly after, a young Jamaican boy watched his mother depart on a plane not for the former seat of the British Empire, but for the USA. At that moment, he determined that he too, one day, would go to the land of opportunity. I'm delighted with my next guest, Dr. Jason D. Hill. Dr. Jason D. Hill is a philosopher. He's a novelist, he's a poet, and a professor. And his latest work is entitled, We Have Overcome, an immigrant's letter to the American people. Now, I should point out and hasten to add that he has written other works too, such as in, for instance, 2009, he wrote Beyond Blood Identities, Post-Humanity in the 21st Century. In 2011, he wrote Becoming a Cosmopolitan, What It Means to Be a Human Being in the New Millennium. That was followed in 2013 by Civil Disobedience and the Politics of Identity, When We Should Not Get Along. And prior to that, or at the same time, I should say to that, is his novel, which came out, which was entitled Jamaica Boy in Search of America. Uh, I should point out that Jason D. Hill is a professor of philosophy at DePaul University in Chicago. He was born and raised in Jamaica, and he has a fascination with all manner of things related to philosophy and political progress. In fact, he's currently working on a, on a, on a work right now, which is entitled A History of Moral and Political Progress in Western Humanity. And Goddesses of Death, Sylvia Plath, and Sexton, and The Moral Meaning of Suicide. And then also he's written various works of poetry that have been published all over everywhere virtually. Um, I just want to begin, if I can. Uh, may I call you Jason? Oh, absolutely. Uh, first of all, I want to say how fascinated I uh, was with your book and you as a person. Uh, obviously, as we've alluded to already, you grew up in, in Jamaica. Now, as with any locale on this blue marble, um, there are certain givens that people assume, which can be rather irritating. For instance, in the case of Jamaica, not everyone walks around saying man, as you know. Uh, I don't think you probably grew up, you can correct me, with uh, pictures of Her Majesty. Now, one of the things I always point out to people that the Queen of England is not just the Queen of England, she's the Queen of Canada and the Queen of Australia. All you have to do is look at the notes to realize that, the, the, the currency. Um, but there was a time when there was a very strong British presence, and now Jamaica's part of the Commonwealth. You grew up in uh, an environment which had kind of the aftermath uh, of that socially. What are some of your earliest memories of Jamaica? Uh, we achieved independence in 1962. 
from England and mm-hmm. I was born in 1965. So I was born in uh, a society that felt quite British to me. I mean, I went to a private school all my life and uh, many of my teachers were English and I went to an English school. Uh, well, it was a school in Jamaica, but it was certainly a school that had um, English inflections and did my O-levels and had my exams graded by British instructors and had many British teachers. My earliest memories, of course, are going to a private school with several English expatriates and having several Jamaican teachers alongside several English teachers. Uh, And my education was extremely formal. I mean, we spoke very formal English in my household and um, the language of the classroom was extremely formal and more particularly the language of the playing field was also very, very formal. Things have changed subsequently. When I go back to Jamaica, I'm surprised at how very few people speak English. Uh, Most people speak the dialect, but when I was growing up, it was uh, my first fond fond memories are playing with um, a lot of English expatriates along with my Jamaican compatriots. Well, it was uh, was a haven too for British artists. I mean, um, Ian Fleming lived there and uh, he had Goldeneyes, his estate. And so uh, there's a great affinity and I think affection that many British people have for Jamaica and to to a large extent still continue to have. What were the family dynamics like, um, Jason, when you were growing up? Um, Did you have a large family or small family? On my father's side of the family, uh, my grandfather was... uh, a pioneer in the independence movement. In fact, when my father was born, he was placed in a detention center uh, because he actually threw the helped to throw the British out. He was a lifelong communist and and he was a trade unionist for what was then called colored people. He, and he was, a, he was a journalist. He was an editor for the newspaper there. His father had been an editor there and his father had subsequently served in an editorial position. So I come from a long line of intellectuals on my father's side of the family. They were sort of like landless aristocrats, um, although they did acquire land later on. And he was a, a, a strong figure. I mean, I remember in high school reading about him. It was very peculiar to be quizzed mm. on your grandfather in high school. He, yes. he was in the history books. Uh, on my mother's side of the family, um, my mother was a banker and was an only child for her, her parents. And uh, so I, I also come from a very multi-ethnic family. I'm speaking in terms of ethnicities and races. My grandmother's father was, um, his, his father was a Sephardic Jew who had married an East Indian woman. And my mother's father was Hispanic. My father had several brothers and sisters. So I grew up among a lot of cousins. Um, on my mother's side of the family, it was quite small. And then I have one brother um, who's 11 months younger than I, and he subsequently went back to Jamaica about four months ago after living in the States for about 34 years. So we left Jamaica when I was 20 and he was 19. On the surface, there would seem to be, in general, incongruities with your life. But I, I just think it's this extra texture. It makes it very interesting. So you've mentioned, you know, the Jewish background. Uh, you've mentioned that your father was uh, a revolutionist of a sort uh, and an avowed communist. Um, and yet you wound up going to somewhat of a privileged school under the old British remnant of the system um, and really being in a Catholic school as well. Today, you're an atheist. Um, no, did... I'm not. I'm not, an, I'm not an atheist anymore, I must say. Oh, you're not? How did that no. change? Well, I, I, I grew up in a very, very religious household and uh, was a, quite religious as a child. Uh, I remember praying quite steadfastly every day. I had a very strong prayer life. And then around the age of 18, I discovered philosophy and that changed my life. I discovered the absolutism of reason and logic and, 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 um, and became an atheist. I just thought the idea of God was, was malarkey. And about, I would say in the past 15 years, I had a conversion experience. Atheism just began to seem like it wasn't an option anymore. There was a void in my life and there was an emptiness. And as I began achieving my life's goals and my life's accomplishments, um, I wasn't feeling the sort of fulfillment that I had thought I would feel. And the atheism, in spite of my best efforts, 
to cling to the absolutism of reason, to reject faith, uh, simply undid itself. And I began believing in God once more. And I'm not a practicing Catholic. I don't think I could ever go back to Catholicism. But I do have a strong belief in God and I pray every day. And But my faith is quite private. It's, it's, it's a very personal relationship with God. That is, I'm still a philosopher who lives by reason, who would never dare introduce an argument in the public sphere that I couldn't back by empirical evidence or through logical argumentation. Um, so I'm some, something of a Thomist. Um, mm. I think that Thomas Aquinas is one of my favorite philosophers, along with Aristotle, that I think you can, one can reconcile faith with reason. Uh, but yes, I was what you would call <laughs> an evangelical atheist at one time. And um, that's just no longer the case. Did you find, um, Jason, that when you decided to reassess your atheism, that there were those who on the atheistic side were disappointed in you or even perhaps even hostile? Not at all. I, f I think they were shocked and I think that they were um, surprised. I find atheists to be quite reasonable people, actually. I find I it's too. more a kind of intolerance that you find among evangelical believers. But I think atheists do have a sense of, some of them, most of them, I think, a sense of their own fallibility vis-a-vis -vis their atheism. Um, it's, it's very rare that you find a sort of militant atheist who will castigate you and lambast you uh, about your belief. Um, so I didn't find any sort of ridicule or any kind of evisceration of my dignity for renouncing or repudiating my atheism at all. When you discovered philosophy, what was the initial impact on you? It was quite profound. I, my father had been plying me with books. He was, um, I was quite close to him. He was my soulmate, actually. And we lost him to schizophrenia, to madness and psychosis um, very early on in my childhood. And, um, but during his moments of lucidity, he would ply me with a lot of books like Immanuel Kant and mm. Nietzsche and, and so on and so forth, which I was reading. I was reading from the time I was three and reading quite voraciously, like 800 page books by the time I was five or six. But he had me reading philosophers. And, um, and so my sensibilities were forged in the crucibles. My philosophic sensibilities were forged in the crucibles of literary works. And then I, I discovered Ayn Rand, um, who was instrumental in my atheism, actually. And uh, I read Atlas Shrugged and the Fountainhead. And along with Bertrand Russell, with whom I was quite taken, uh, I decided I wanted to pursue a PhD in philosophy. I didn't intend to become a professor. I wanted to become a full-time novelist and a writer. And I had worked as a journalist in Jamaica before coming to America for two years. And I thought I'd be a full-time writer with a PhD in philosophy. It was a vocational calling. I knew really that I had philosophical sensibilities and literary sensibilities. I did a double major in English literature and philosophy in school. But I thought that my calling really was to be a philosopher and a writer. And it really changed my life. I think I, think I was a lonely child. I was very um, filled with a sense of abandonment and in the existential sense of the term, like being thrust on the earth and my, my being was incomplete and philosophy is a way of filling that void with a sense of plenitude and a sense of completion and becoming. And, uh, and so philosophy was a way of satiating that emptiness and that, um, that longing, that aspirational identity that I just longed for. I found it, I found it in philosophy and I found it in literature as well. Well, you evidently had a season where theology was at bay, but then as we've just reckoned and, and uh, acknowledged, it, it came back again. So for you, there isn't that much of a gulf or separation, I would presume, between Athens and Jerusalem. They're just different approaches? Well, I, the way I sort of explain it is by way of an analogy. It's, um, it's like watching several movies or reading several books, there are prisms through which we see the world. Mm -hmm. And 
the philosophers are, or the theologians or thinkers are artists through whom we get a close picture of the world and some of them illuminate the world more clearly than others. Some of them actually see the world as if they have cataracts in their eyes and then some of them actually see the world as if they have goggles on. And um, I tend to look at philosophy that way. Some of our, our perceptive skills are heightened by some. And um, so the question that you posed, I think I would agree with that, yes. So you eventually come to the United States. What was the, what was the if you will, the inciting incident that led to you coming to the United States? I think I've always had a love affair with America. Um, I wanted to come to America from as far back as I could remember. My parents came to America when I was three and my brother was two. Uh, they emigrated and what should have been a four-week separation turned into a four-year, almost a four-year separation because my father developed schizophrenia and um, my mother really had to take care of him. And uh, we were separated for four years. We saw our parents twice a year, but my mother didn't realize it was schizophrenia. She just thought it was irresponsibility or something different. And mm. finally she divorced him and came back to Jamaica at seven. I always loved America. I always had a dream of making something magnanimous and remarkable of my life. And I knew that on the tiny island nation of Jamaica, to which I felt absolutely no connection, uh, I always felt alienated from Jamaica. I always felt that I belonged somewhere else. And my imagination um, f fixed itself to America. I had relatives. My cousin was the Jamaican ambassador to Switzerland. At the time, my mother said to me, do you want to go to Switzerland and go to boarding school there? And you could become very multi multilingual like your cousins and be fluent in German and French and Italian and so on. I said, absolutely not. America is my destiny. That's the country I want to go. Um, I could have been quite comfortable in England, I think, but I imagined America as this vast landscape on which I could sort of reenact a new script and, and, and write, rewrite my life in a manner in which I could play God and become the multiplicity of things that I really, really wanted to become. So that, that was the sort of stimulus for coming to America, that I imagined it as this vast place where you could start metaphysically clean from scratch and uh, rebuild your life. When you finally arrived in America, um, what things were difficult for you to entertain? Because there, there is always a phase when we go to a new land of disillusionment. So there's thrill, fascination, and then there's a wave of disillusionment. When did any disillusionment manifest? I don't think I've ever had one moment of disillusionment, and I mean this quite seriously, in 35 years of living in America, with America. I've had setbacks and I've had personal crises in my life, but I attribute none of them to America. I have been thoroughly in love with this country from the moment I landed. I mean, I made a covenant with America from minutes before the aircraft touched on in Atlanta, which is where we went in 1985 when we, we all left. My mother thought we were too young to come, so she gave up her career and she came. Um, I have never been disillusioned with the country per se. I've been disappointed with what I thought were intellectually bankrupt moments in American culture and with certain trends that I thought the country is drifting towards. But I've never been disillusioned with America. Uh, I have set my goals and I have found that the country has not been inimical to those goals, but actually quite conducive. I think of America as a benevolent universe, as the place that has brought me along with my mother's tremendous sac the sac sacrifices that she has made in her life, um, that America has brought me where I am, that it is an amazing republic. So I really haven't had, I really haven't been disillusioned with America at all. But there was perhaps disillusionment, as you've expressed in your, in your book, which is we have overcome. Uh, with your study of philosophy early on and some dismay that you felt regarding academics, I, I'm going to uh, read directly from the book here. You write, I came to understand as an academic philosopher that it was in our institutions of higher learning, our universities, that the real destruction of America was taking place. Our nation's universities, 
in their advocacy of Americophobia, are not only sites of national security threats, they are purveyors and repositories of racial divisiveness in this country. The biggest breach in this country is not between blacks and whites, it's between the intellectuals and the people. Yes. So how did you arrive at that? Through experience and um, through observation, of course, but through experience and being ensconced in the academy for now 25, almost 25 years, um, and, and being terribly disappointed with the academy, but not equating that, of course, with America. Uh, America is not a hermetically sealed country in which you can't sort of ostensibly point to other vectors that um, offer an antidote or a remedy. But um, I've been extremely disappointed with the academy and how um, one-sided it has been in terms of what I, I imagined the academy to be something quite different um, than it turned out to be. And um, the, especially the way that my profession, philosophy, has morphed into something that I didn't th think it would morph into. So if I have disillusion, it's in the way that higher education is going, is really is morphing into, into something quite nefarious in this country. But I, I'm sort of reluctant to use the word disillusionment um, in terms of describing my disappointment with the academy. Um, because it implies a sense of hopelessness and uh, an absence of antidotes to remedy what I have found disappointing in the academy and in my field of philosophy. You express on page 26, uh, you say that you write the following, I cannot communicate to you the anti-American sentiment, the actual hatred of America that is constitutive feature of the academic left in this country, especially found in the humanities and social sciences. There I found a phalanx of bourgeois Marxist professors extolling the virtues of communism and socialism, but living off the profit of a capitalistic system. I yes. and another immigrant friend of mine, an African woman from Cameroon named Ozung, referred to them as welfare scholars. Wow. Right. That's, yes. that's, that's tight, that's powerful, that's potent. And I'm sure there are many people who will take exception to that. And what do you say to your critics? I say to my critics that many of you are ethically condemnatory of capitalism, but your libidos are, and your desires are covetous of the products of capitalism, and therefore you're moral hypocrites. Um, so you cannot be really against capitalism while you're desirous and you're, you're consuming the products of capitalism. Uh, and I think it's true. I mean, I have witnessed um, these individuals who are Maoists and Stalinists and Marxists who express a deep hatred for America and everything that America stands for and are not just critical of America, which I think is proper and appropriate um, the Republic is not perfect. Uh, it should be held accountable for some of the wrongs that it has done and, and still continues to perpetuate. But this is different from being anti-American, that is blaming America for every wrong or every misfortune that afflicts individuals in and outside of America. Um, I've seen it and I've, I, I see the way that over the past 25 years, what was permitted in the classroom discussion where um, there used to be diversity of thought that was permitted is now being shut down. And one perspective, if you deviate from orthodoxy that is seen to be received wisdom, you're cast as somehow um, a far right conservative or somehow demonized, that view sort of demonized instead of being debated. I think in the old days, when I first came to America, at least, um, if you held different perspectives, one would want to debate you and to prove you wrong. No, you are silenced and, and there are voices that would seek to shut you down and keep you off campus. But I'll give you an example. When I was in college and I would have described myself as liberal back then, and now I would describe myself as a sort of conservative liberal but I was liberal back then and there was a conservative speaker coming onto campus and 
he was a conservative black speaker. Um, and there were a number of students from the uh, black diasporic studies who were against him, but they all eagerly wanted to hear him. And they were all vying among the students who would get to take him out for a drink to argue with him and prove to him why he was wrong about pulling oneself from the bootstrap. Today, that same thinker would not be allowed on campus. There would be petitions to have him not be, not be allowed on campus. He'd be booed. His microphone would be dragged away from him. These are the kinds of changes that have occurred that have left me very, very disappointed where free speech is being shut down. Healthy debate, robust debates um, are being compromised. And um, that's, that's my response to my, my colleagues. It's very, very real. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, your host, and my guest, I am so happy to say, is Dr. Jason D. Hill. He is, in fact, a philosopher, a novelist, a poet, and a professor. That's three Ps, by the way, philosopher, poet, professor, and novelist. And his latest work is entitled, We Have Overcome, an Immigrant's Letter to the American People. The title to some would be considered provocative. Um, some would take exception, say, no, we have not overcome. Obviously, this is a reference to the civil rights song that was um, invoked and popular in the 19, uh, early 60s from Selma, Alabama to walks across bridges um, to uh, certainly uh, protests all around the, the southeastern part of the United States. Yes. And some people would say, how audacious... Dr. Jason D. Hill, how audacious for you, who have come from, to some degree, a, a prominent family. You've alluded to the fact that you had, um, I think you said, an ambassador in your in your lineage. Uh, your father was prominent in that he was known in textbooks that you read in Jamaica, etc. My grandfather. Et my grandfather. Oh, your grandfather. I'm so sorry. Your grandfather. Thank you for correcting me. And um, the people on the sidelines would perhaps have a proclivity to say, well, it's okay for Jason. He went to a nice Catholic school and he came to America and he had a facility with language and he was precocious at the age of five reading 800 page books, etc. How dare he stand in judgment of others? Um, to what would you say, what would be your retort to those type of accusations? Well, I take them quite seriously, to be honest. And I say that I never had to sit in the back of a bus and I never had to drink at, uh, you know, a colored water cooler. Uh, I never had my dignity eviscerated by being pointed to, you know, a particular bathroom assigned on the basis of racial ascriptive identity. However, um, I came to this country at 20 and I was not immune from the kinds of racism that other blacks were subjected to. So there are, two, there are two answers I want to give. One is that today I steadfastly hold that race is no longer determinant of one's destiny as it certainly was during slavery and to a large degree as it certainly was under Jim Crow and under legal segregation. I firmly believe that if, with steadfastness, if you have a vision, if you have a goal, if you finish high school and don't have a child out of wedlock and get a job, um, you can make it. And one of the things I do in the book is tell the stories of immigrants, not just from Jamaica, but from Vietnam, from Africa, who came to this country with very little, with, with very little knowledge of the language and with sheer determination, with no help from the state, uh, save their money. I tell of a nurse uh, and a gardener who couldn't speak any English, who came from Jamaica, watched a lot of television, learned the language, started out with one lawnmower, ended up with two tractor mowers and ended up hiring Mexicans under him and buying a house three times the size of my mother's house. Um, this is a country where based on your interpretation and based on your philosophy and based on your ethos, you can make something of your life because race is no longer determinant of one's destiny. Now, as far as we have overcome what we have overcome, I would say that since the 1964 Civil Rights Act, in which blacks were granted full equality before the law, that um, that's the sense in which we have overcome. That's really what the civil rights movement was about. The civil rights movement wasn't about redistributing wealth to everyone. The civil rights movement wasn't about making everyone equal because we're not all equal. We're equal before the law, but this idea of egalitarianism 
is a shibboleth that I think has to be debunked. We're not equal, even interracially, equal in intelligence, equal in frugality, equal in physical strength, equal in beauty. Um, there are differences among people. So the idea of legislating equality of outcomes is um, impossible. We have overcome in the sense that we enjoy full equality before the law, which was the goal of the civil rights movement. And in enjoying equality before the law, we are now full denizens or citizens in the pantheon of the human community. And we occupy a space within what I would call the domain of the ethical, which heretofore blacks had not enjoyed. And that's, that's the way I'm using we have overcome. Not that there is no longer prejudice and there, there are no longer um, ways in which blacks are unfairly treated, but we enjoy full equality before the law. And in a constitutional republic for it to remain free, I don't see how we can remain free um, without trespassing on the rights of other people by going beyond granting full equality before the law. Um, that's as far as I think a constitutional republic can go in terms of treating all citizens equally and fairly. The question is, what is the point of arrival where people will be um, reasonably at peace with a level of, of non-prejudice? Uh, what I mean by this is, is it realistic to assume that you can reach this utopian stage where no one will have any prejudices whatsoever. Um, it might be as flawed a concept as saying, you know, uh, they'll never, we want to reach a point where there's never any violence. We want to reach a point where there's never any jealousy. If the human soul is uh, inclined towards base reactions to things at times, uh, is it realistic to say that we can uh, eliminate expunge, get rid of all prejudice? Or should we be willing to say, okay, we at best can reduce it? I think at best we can reduce it. And in my very first book that I wrote, Become, Becoming a Cosmopolitan, uh, What It Means to Be a Human Being in the New Millennium, I espouse a philosophy of love of humanity and questioned what I call tribal loyalties, that is strong racial, ethnic identities and talked about the kind of ethical responsibilities that we have to people outside of our kin groups and questioned the extent to which we gain the major thrust of our identities from identities that are morally neutral, that is racial, ethnic or national identities, which have no moral, uh, these are sociological attributes that have no moral um, texture fixed to them. I think if we begin the process of divesting ourselves of a kind of metaphysical seriousness attached to these ascriptive identities and see ourselves as moral agents and see each other first and foremost as individuals who are members of cultures and who do have these markers of race and ethnicity affixed to them, but they have no moral significance in the sense that they don't tell us anything about the moral status of a person we can sort of approximate the ideal of a non-prejudicial society. Um, but short of a bloated totalitarian state in which um, we punish people for holding stupid psychotic beliefs, which is what racism really is, um, I would rather live in a free society in which people are free to hold their ridiculous racist beliefs so long as it doesn't contravene into the public sphere and translate into something like harmful action. Um, uh, John Stuart Mill, who's one of my favorite philosophers said, look, there are just certain inconveniences that uh, come with liberty and freedom. And one such, one of those inconveniences happened to be people who wish to elevate their sophomoric high school opinions, the level of human knowledge. And I think that's what racists do. They, they have certain beliefs about people that are erroneous and they wish to elevate them to the level of knowledge and then enact that knowledge into uh, sometimes laws. People are flawed and people, the frailty of the human condition is such that people are going to hold erroneous viewpoints and we can't by fiat or by, by de jure laws um, just 
wish them away. What we can do is protect individual rights and, um, and try to cultivate an ethos. As a philosopher, I'm more concerned with cultivating an ethos that respects intrinsic dignity and viable moral worth of all persons um, than I am in trying to somehow play the policeman and um, monitor, you know, the, the, the belief systems of all persons. I would rather much in the classroom cultivate an ethos of respectability and of respect, I should say, and, and teach what inviolable dignity and moral worth of which each person is the possessor of. Our very first guest on Watching America was Camille Pallia, uh, an atheist, mm-hmm. uh, lesbian, um, intellectual, uh, critic of popular culture. And she made the argument on this program that people must be granted the ability to hate if they so choose. Now, they can't act on it. And she was very clear to say that. But she said it's as absurd to try and legislate against people's emotions of hate any more than it would be to insist that people must love. Uh, People have emotional states and psychological proclivities to react to various persons one way or another. But she said the issue, and she alluded to this, was the fact that there is a place for, even though she's an atheist, for religious, uh, if you will, uh, premises. And one of them is the idea that, you know, many people have jettisoned the Hebrew outlook of life. Um, But the Hebrew religion, Jewish religion, had the cold concept that everyone was made in God's image. If you have a worldview that people are made in God's image, you have an imbued reverence already for other parts of humanity. Do you think that's a loss? Or is it something that can be attained from, from humanistic efforts? No, I, uh, well, when I was an atheist, I still was very, very careful not to eviscerate people of their religious sensibilities. I mean, I said I was an evangelical atheist, meaning that I just didn't really believe in God, but I was very careful to take my grandmother to church every every Sunday and to buy her prayer books. I think there is something um, that liberalism and secularism in general simply cannot and this is what I was experiencing earlier in your show, as I explained, a void, an emptiness uh, that only, I think, something that art stores, the transcendent, uh, can fill. And I think that there is nothing within secularism that can really speak to that intrinsic, inviolable dignity. I mean, I'm very influenced by the Sto- Stoics. I love Marcus Aurelius and Seneca and Zeno and all of those wonderful philosophers who do talk and they predate Christianity and they do talk about, some of them at least, they do talk about uh, the intrinsic dignity of, of the human condition. But there's something, there's something about the Christian tradition that is almost, it, it, it seems like a eugenical ideal, uh, where, especially when Christ comes along and everyone is remade in the image of Christ, whether you're a, a prostitute or a Greek or a wayfarer or a Pharisee that no matter how slimy and filthy you were, you, you can be reborn. There's redemption, I think that, yes. Yes, I think there is something there that has to be preserved um, and should be preserved. And that's an ethos that I think is quite healthy. Well, going into the political stances, uh, because mm-hmm. this, is, this is part of your expertise as well, um, how does one find today redemption for past mistakes? Because we're living in an era, very clearly, uh, where things that people may have said 15 years or more ago or 15 weeks ago or whenever can be brought up, not only by social media, but by you know essays, books. And this happens on the left and the right, I might add. Yes. Um, yes. How, how can one uh, you know, uh, find absolution uh, and forgiveness. Well, this, you know, I have a book coming out in October that's called What Do White Americans Owe Black People? Racial Justice in the Age of Post-Oppression. And I, I, I talk about this. And I think that the, the way forward is through something called radical forgiveness. That is recognizing the frailty of the human condition. Owning, first of all, owning one shadow and owning the frailty that exists within one's 
psyche and within one's own personal constitution and forgiving other people for past transgressions or other members of other groups or whole groups for past transgressions. I immediately think of Nelson Mandela. Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, I, I think that that's the primary example we have on this planet, at least in the latter part of the 20th century, um, which was exemplary uh, with this idea, Nelson Mandela saying, you know, okay, we will have acknowledgement of wrongs but we will not punish and there will be no retribution. Uh, that, that was truly phenomenal. I think it's truly phenomenal. One of the things I, I'm going to address, I address in this forthcoming book is that forgiveness is absolutely necessary. That um, the idea of holding people whose ancestors may or may not have committed uh, atrocities or the idea of holding people whom you think because they're white have something called white privilege and that white privilege benefits them enormously, which I don't think they can do anything about it or short of self-annihilating themselves. I mean, I have educational privilege in having four college degrees. I don't know what I can do about it, except not be patronizing to people who are not as educated as I am. We have to sort of learn first to forgive people um, and to have a sense of compassion and a sense of charity towards people and realize that sometimes people act not out of malice and out of hostility, but sometimes out of ignorance and sometimes out of a sense of, uh, if it's not ignorance, it's a sense of, of, of fear. And um, to understand that those motives themselves are not sufficient to cast people into an irredeemable status out of which they they can't emerge, and um, I think that this is this is what I, as a person, not just as a professor, because I don't politicize my classroom, but as a walking individual in the world, this is what I try to embody uh, towards people in the world: that sense of radical forgiveness and a sense of understanding the frailty of the human condition by first accepting and loving the frailty that not well, loving myself in spite of the frailty and understanding the frailty and understanding my own capacity to be cruel and my own capacity to be uh, insensitive towards others, not because I'm malicious, but because of a host of motives. Um, and if I can do that within myself, then I can certainly extrapolate onto other people and understand that they too. So I think, you know, actually liberating ourselves from self-righteousness and, mm -hmm. um, is, is the key and realizing that we're all equally culpable of, of mistakes and errors of judgment is one of the, the first steps. I think that's, that's necessary. If you're just joining us, tuning in, uh, I feel sorry for you because you've missed some really good stuff. <laughs> so get the, get the playback or, or the, the download of, uh, of, the, of the podcast version. But you are, in fact, listening to Watching America. And I am Dr. Alan Campbell. And it is my great pleasure, I really mean that, to have Dr. Jason D. Hill with us. He is a philosopher, poet, professor, I've said, and novelist. And his latest work is We Have Overcome, an immigrant's letter to the American people. Um, Jason, we were, t we were just talking about radical forgiveness. Are you able to exercise that on a personal level in your life? Uh, the reason I ask this is not uh, with any condescension whatsoever or assumption that you are unable or haven't been successful in that regard, but I'm mentioning it self-reflexively because I think, you know, it's it, can we forgive from the macro to the micro? And I... I'm avidly working at forgiving in the instant, at the moment, and then with a continuance of life. And I'm not sure that we're cultivating that characteristic in our children, in our young people, moreover in ourselves as adults. What's been your experience? Uh, my experience is, in, is that it has been very, very difficult for me to do that. It's, and I'm, I'm becoming better at it as I get older. And the reason is because I think that, and maybe it's for selfish reasons, that a calcification of the heart is the concomitant result of not forgiving, that one begins to ossify and one begins to shrivel mm. when one harbors resentment and revenge 
And so maybe it stems from first an instinct towards self-preservation, that it is in your own rational self-interest to forgive, even in the absence of account accountability or uh, a forthcoming um, acknowledgement of wrong done by the other. It is just a healthier and uh, and a more uplifting way of relieving oneself of that sort of um, burden. And um, and I I pray about it and I ask for the strength to understand um, and moral imagination. I, 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 this is why I like literature because literature, unlike philosophy, uh, forces you to put yourself in other people's shoes. I like Dickens a lot because Dickens allows you to inhabit the spaces of, let's say, the working poor in England during the Industrial Revolution, for example. And yes. you, you, you put yourself in other people's shoes and you can imagine what it would be like to be someone else. And I think that's what forgiveness demands. It asks you to put yourself in someone's shoes yes. and to imagine the multiplicity of motives, the plethora of motives out of which, from which I should say, they might have, might have influenced their behaviors. And if you can just, with a patina of sensitivity, I might say, just apply that sensitivity to their lives, you will in some sense, find yourself understanding human, the human condition a little bit more. But I think it takes moral imagination. But, you know, Dr. Campbell, it, it's, a, it's a lot of work. Please call and me I Alan. Think, <laughs> oh, Alan, okay. It's, it's a lot of work. And um, uh, I think a lot of people lack that discipline, uh, not because they're lazy, but because it makes you quite vulnerable. And I will say this forgiveness, um, radical forgiveness does make one vulnerable because look, there's a kind of steeliness that you can encase yourself in when you are um, entombed in what I, what Aristotle would call righteous indignation. You know, there is a kind of a steeliness and a kind of self-protectiveness because you don't have to look within. You don't really have to look at um, your own motives and your own shortcomings you have eyes that look outward at the world, but never inward. When you start forgiving other people, you begin a process also self-examination, which makes you very, very vulnerable. Yes. yes. Uh, you know, so I think it's, it's very difficult. So right. I, uh, one of the things I would like us to see, I'd like to see us becoming is a little bit more compassionate towards yourself, not a kind of self-indulgence, right. mawkish yes. sentimental self-indulgence, but just being understanding of our own frailties and owning our shadow selves. Right. Um, uh, the old proverbial, you know, remove the log in your own eye before you try and take the speck out of somebody else's. Exactly. Or even the log in somebody else's is, is pointless. So. Exactly. Um, I, uh, I feel such a, a kindredness with you uh, on, on many levels. Uh, and one of them, obviously, is I'm completely enamored and in love with this co country. Uh, I find Americans sometimes, ironically, uh, either oblivious to the greatness of this land and its opportunity, uh, or sometimes indifferent, which is really sad. And there's, you know, there's a strong portion of people who get the country and love it and adore it and, and realize it's imperfect as all places. But as you and I both know as immigrants, um, this is a land of hope and indeed opportunity. That's not just a, a salesmanship line. It's, it's a fact. And uh, people from all over this globe want to come here as a, as a haven of opportunity and uh, safety and what have you. Um, what is your greatest joy about America and the American people? My greatest joy is that um, I find most Americans to be celebratory of success and hard work. That is the absence of envy. I mean, there are envious people, but Americans as a whole, and I'll give you an example. When people win the lottery, Americans celebrate. They don't say, <laughs> oh, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't win. Why, why didn't I win? You know, <laughs> why did that person win? Americans love success. They like when other people are successful. They celebrate. Yes. Yeah. 
when people become rich, they because it, it, it gives them hope. It speaks to their aspirational identity that, oh, I'm not poor. I'm just not yet rich. Yes. And I, I, too, can aspire to that. So I like the absence of envy. I like the can-do spirit of Americans. I like the sense of the absence of bitterness. Americans are not a, a bitter people. They're also um, hard workers. I mean, that's they're hard workers. They're very hard workers. Uh, you, I, I mean, I'm going to get myself in the in the doghouse here, perhaps with some people, but I can't say that always for other lands that people work as hard and as diligently. And sometimes I think maybe you know, on on balance, sometimes Americans work too hard. They get very little vacations compared to other nations. Yes, but yes. They're, they're, it's an industrious nation. You know, it's um, yes. yeah, very, very proud of, of what they can accomplish. And, you know, they have and we have the thing I love about America, too, is that it has at its heart what I call a self-reflexivity clause. It's always looking at the egregious mistakes it's made in the past and how it can correct itself. So look at how far we've come in 246, 48 years yes. where, you know, gay people can get married, women Women have certain rights now. Trans people have certain rights now. This is a remarkable, unprecedented phenomenon that America looks at its past errors and it's always saying, how can we correct the errors, the transgressions that we have committed in the past? I think the curious thing, based on all what you've indicated, that, you know, there's all these breakthroughs. I've heard it said by others, and I I can't recall who specifically, but uh, of all the times for... Um, people to be disenchanted with America now would seem to be the least likely of of times because, as you've just said, you know, there's a sensitivity to all manner of groups and people and circumstances and what have you. And there's no uh, consistent, I'm not saying there aren't hateful people, there are, but there's no overt campaign to constantly want to destroy people. Uh, To the contrary, and that's why people even from other lands, as you and I have attested to, want to come here. It's It's... It's good. And it's, it's not good. shameful to say that America is good. You know, no. not perfect, but has goodness, really does. That's right. That's um, right. Dr. Jason D. Hill, uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed this hour. For me, it's flown by, and I, and I trust for many of the listeners it has as well. Um, I want to thank you so much, sir, for being who you are. Uh, and as an immigrant, uh, giving voice to a different perspective, as we try to do each week here on Watching America. And I am very enthusiastic about your future work when it comes out. His latest available book for, from Jason D. Hill is We Have Overcome. And you might say, well, no, we haven't. Well, OK, fair enough. But uh, give a read and see what you think and then perhaps reassess the situation. So, Jason, thank you. I'd like to call you friend and say take care and God bless. Thank you so much. The same to you. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our assistant producer, Jordan Christie. Gina Gamboni is our senior producer. Chuck Dowd is our executive producer. And Heather Mazzoni is chief of content. Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.